will know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they, ha- will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go eat your bread and Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. <coughs> let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife with whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this wonderful day today. We thank you for helping all of us to come here today and worship your name, O Lord. Um, as we have read the scripture today, O Lord, I pray that you would be able to speak through, uh, speak to us, O Lord, through Raven's uncle. I pray that uh, you would give him the guidance to uh, tell the message today. And I also pray that uh, we would be able to grasp and understand everything that is being spoken today and uh, apply it into our lives, O Lord. Uh, all these things I ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good morning. How are you all doing? Only Juni is good. Right, so we will continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as is clear from the reading, today we will be looking at chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Can you hear me at the back? Ansh? Can. Right. Let me begin with an illustration here. Many years ago, a small group of world's wealthiest men met together in a very luxurious hotel in Chicago. And in fact, at that time, when these men met together, they had more wealth than the wealth that was available in the United States Treasury. They were so wealthy. In fact, there were seven of the world's wealthiest men. Of the seven who were present at the meeting, shortly thereafter, two died broke. Two of them got into prison and died shortly after being released. Three of them committed suicide. The wealthiest men in the world, and look at the kind of end all of the seven came to. Not one or two, all of the seven. So clearly, we see from this that their approach to life was completely wrong. People today show various reactions to their unknown future. In fact, they espouse certain philosophies which affect their lives. Let me read for you certain philosophies that people espouse which really affect their lives when it comes to their uncertain future that they are looking at. Materialism says this. 
You can, you can only enjoy the good life now, so supply yourself with good. Hedonism says, pleasure is the only thing you can enjoy before you die, so live it up. Humanism says, there is no afterlife to live for anyone, so exalt yourself right now. And then fatalism says, the game of the future is rigged, so resign yourself. When you look at all these philosophies, and when you look at our future, and we don't know what our future holds for us, at least in terms of not knowing the future on this earth, we have some questions that crop up in our minds. And those are, how do you respond to an uncertain future? Or, are there things that you need to understand this morning? Are there things that I need to understand this morning about life and death that will help us live well? Is there anything that this passage gives to us about life and death that I need to understand, that you need to understand this morning, for us to be able to live well, live in a way that God wants us to live? And thankfully, this passage that was read for us, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 10, gives us the answers to the questions that we just raised. Solomon, if you remember, in the last eight chapters that we saw, he's been exploring the meaning of life. He's had various pursuits. He used his intelligence. He used his power, knowledge, everything. And he came to the conclusion that under the sun, which is in this world of time plus matter plus chance, where there's no revelation from God, where there's no relationship with God, where there's no divine revelation, pursuit of pleasure or anything like that or meaning is like a chasing after the wind. It comes to nothing. It's a vanity, said Solomon. And having said that, towards the end of Ecclesiastes, which is chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, which we're going to study, he comes to some important conclusions. He presents with us some major realities that give our lives definition and meaning. So he's going to give to us some major realities about life that will give our lives some meaning and some definition. So today's passage will reveal to us three things about life and death that you and I need to know. Three things about life and death that you and I need to know that will enable us to live our lives in a way that God wants us to live. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verses 1 through 10. Firstly, in verses 1 through 3, you will see that life has uncertainties, but death is certain for all. Life has uncertainties for sure, but death is certain for all. You know nothing of what's going to happen to you in the future on this earth, except the fact that you and I are going to die for sure. And in explaining this, Solomon gives us four observations for us. And look at the logic, the brilliant logic, in fact, that Solomon is using here as we go step by step. Firstly, he begins with the sovereignty of God. And he says, God is in control and cares for his people. God is in control of everything and he cares for his people. Look at the first part of verse 1, 1a. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Now Solomon here in chapter 9 is starting a new section. But as is the case with Solomon, as we've seen in the rest of the eight chapters, anything that he starts new is always organically connected to all the pursuits that he did before and to his journey thus far. 
And so he begins by saying here, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. All this I laid to heart. All of what did he lay to heart or examine it all? All the things that he is talking about here were spoken about in chapter 8 especially. Remember in chapter 8 that we studied, he talked about the fact that justice is endlessly delayed. And because justice is endlessly delayed, there is no justice that is timely. The fact of the matter is, there is an enormous wickedness that is spreading out. And it was encouraging the flourishing of evil is what Solomon said. And so the theme there of chapter 8 is human ignorance of God's providence. Humans are ignorant about God's providence. Nobody is able to know what God is really up to, said Solomon. And here as he begins a new topic, in chapter 9, he says, I've taken all that to heart, and I want to explain it this way. Righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Of God. Now, listen please. In the language of the Old Testament, to be righteous is to be wise. And to be wise is to be righteous. And so he says, to be in the hand of God here means to be subject to God's sovereignty and God's power. To be in the hand of God is to be subject to God's sovereignty and God's power. In the rest of the Old Testament, to be in God's hands is a wonderful thing for the righteous and the wise. Because it's a matter of assurance for them. It's a matter of security for them. It's a source of trust for them. And Solomon here in this verse is confessing the doctrine of God's sovereignty, stressing that all righteous people, all wise people, what all they do, plus the outcome of what they do, is completely in the hands of the sovereign God. Is completely under God's control. Righteous people, wise people, he's talking about the same set of people. So righteous people and wise people, not just them, but whatever they do, and the outcome of whatever they do, is in the good control of a sovereign God. In other words, he's acknowledging that God's children, those who by, by his grace have been redeemed, have become righteous and are wise in God's hands, they are under God's special care. They are under God's special providence. And he takes comfort that in this crazy world where there's a lot of injustice, where there's a lot of oppression, wherever you turn, you see oppression. He takes comfort by realizing that God takes special care of his children. Isn't it wonderful to know this morning that he takes special care of you this morning? He takes special care of me under his sovereignty. Now Solomon, realizing this, has appropriated the truth for himself. And when he sees the difficulties of life in his own life, as he's encountering slings and arrows of suffering and oppression and injustice, he has taken comfort in the fact that God is in control. God is completely in control of everything and God cares for his people. So those who are righteous and wise, their persons and actions, their lives and deeds are under the special providence of God, under the protection of God, and that makes all the difference for the righteous and the wise, and that is all of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Realizing that changes the way you look at the world. So the first thing that Solomon begins by saying is that God is in control, and he takes care of his people. But he doesn't stop there. Solomon doesn't. Even though it is true that God cares for his own, he goes on to say a second thing, and that is that life has uncertainties that none of us knows about. Life has uncertainties that none of us knows about. Look at the second part of verse 1. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. 
Both are before him is what Solomon says. No man knows what awaits him is a message that Solomon is giving. What kind of a treatment the righteous will get in the future on earth? What kind of a treatment they will get uh, as days go by is uncertain is what Solomon is saying here. What kind of life will he experience is uncertain. No one can tell what the future brings. Now, righteousness and wisdom, according to Solomon here, then have no guarantees of leading a blissful life. For example, you can have a very godly person who's going to have a very tough future on this earth. On the other hand, you can have a very lousy person who can, who can just get by life very well. And so that's the way life is, even though we are under the care and providence of our sovereign God. This life is filled with unexpected trials. And I'm reminded of the words of Bob Hope, who after receiving a major award, he once said this. He responded by saying, I don't deserve this, but then I have arthritis. I don't deserve that either. Now, I really appreciate the humor in the remark, but that's very bad theology. First of all, because we don't deserve anything good. And anything good that we have is because of the mercy of God. And secondly, whatever good or bad comes into our lives, we must realize are from the hand of God. Both of them. It's not just the good that comes from the hand of God. Both good and bad can come from the hand of God. And so Solomon is saying here that life has uncertainties that none of us know about. Thirdly, Solomon says that the common fate of everyone is death. The common fate of everyone is death. Look at verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. Like Solomon has been saying, that things oftentimes go hard for the wise, even though they are under God's providential care. And one of the ways we can establish that is by looking at the fact that although the wise and the righteous are under God's providential care, they come to the same end like everybody else. We end in death. It is the same for all, says Solomon. He says, everyone dies. The righteous may not be visibly preferred by the sovereignty of God or by providence because the righteous die just like the sinners die. Death comes to all, he says. Now look at the list that he gives here. The righteous and the wicked, the good man and the evil man, the clean and the unclean, the faithful worshiper and the indolent non-worshipper, the good man and the sinner, the loyal covenant keeper and the disloyal covenant breaker. Death comes to all of us and it is a universal thing that straightens everybody out. Solomon here is forcing the reality of death upon all of us and saying, you've got to have an answer to that question. In the face of universal death, you've got to have some sort of an answer for meaning in life that makes sense. You know, this is something that the religions in the cultures around Israel dealt with in various ways by either denying death or through mythological things that they dealt with. Let me explain that a little bit and see what Solomon is writing here. Religions around Israel thought that there is an afterlife and there is another world in the afterlife which they came into contact with on several occasions through mediums and spirits and ghosts. This is the cultures around Israel. For example, the ancient Egyptians would load up their pharaohs upon their death and they would have lots of gold and food and concubines and everything. They would bury all of that 
in the pyramids along with the dead pharaoh. Why? Because they thought he could easily be whisked with all of these accessories into the other world and he could start enjoying right away. Pagans around Israel would do the same. And to all of them, Solomon gives a word of realism about death. And that is, when you die, you stay dead. When you die, you stay dead. There's no memory of you is what Solomon says. Isn't Solomon a believer in the afterlife? Isn't he a believer in God? Of course he is. But Solomon here is desentimentalizing and demythologizing and calling us to reckon the reality of death. There is death and all of us die one day. So Solomon's point is this, that you and I can work out in gym on a daily basis. You and I can take our vitamin tablets. You and I can shun off Krispy Kreme and, uh, and uh, KFC and all of those things. But the fact of the matter is, even the best care of the flesh will one day put us in a pit at the end of the day. All of us are going to die. The common fate of everyone is death. Lastly, Solomon says, I think I got ahead of myself clicking that. Death is moral evil and a sign of God's judgment. Look at verse 3. Death is moral evil and a sign of God's judgment. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hands while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Death, says Solomon, is a judgment of God. The universal Death that impacts even those God's people, even those who are God's people, is viewed by Solomon as something that is not natural. Death is not natural. Everybody, some people say, you know, in fact, everybody says this, that dying is part of living. Have you heard that? Dying is part of living. Solomon here says otherwise. Dying is a great evil, he says. It's not part of living. Not just because it's bad to be dead, but because death is a sign of God's judgment. Death is a sign of God's judgment. It is a moral judgment against the rebellion of man. That's what Solomon is saying here. And because of this, Solomon views death as a pervasive evil. Death is not viewed by him as a natural phenomenon, but as a moral evil. So he reminds us that death is a curse for moral rebellion. Uh, the founder of Christian Science, Mary Baker Eddy, she once said, that death, there is no death, it is just an illusion. All around us today, we have modern pagans whispering into our ears that death is nothing, it is just an illusion, and it takes away the moral gravity of what death really is. But Solomon here is saying that it is not a pleasant transition into the other world as the pagans talk about, but the fact of the matter is, death is a moral judgment of God. Death is a judgment of God for our moral rebellion. And the preacher is saying, when you die, you stay dead. Again, let me remind you, he's not denying afterlife at all here. Because he himself points to the ultimate judgment of God and the vindication that God gives for his own people. But the point here is, he's stripping away the sentimentalized view that death for everyone, even for pagans, is just a transition into a world of blissfulness. Solomon is saying, no. It is not to a world of blissfulness for everyone. It is only for the righteous. And it is going to be blissful in the next life if you have a blissful time now. And the only way you have a blissful time now is if you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Solomon's point is here. Death is moral evil and a sign of God's judgment. 
So in verses 1, through and, 1, 2, and 3, we saw that life has uncertainties, but death is certain for all. But wouldn't this knowledge that we all share the same ultimate destiny cause us to despair of life? After all, who would want to live if he doesn't know what the future holds for him and that he won't escape the clutch of death? So should we despair of life? Solomon says no and leads us to our second point in verses 4 through 6. They say that life is more advantageous than death. Yes, death is certain. We don't know our future. But the fact of the matter is life is more advantageous than death. Despite the iniquities of life, says Solomon, life is better than death. And he gives two reasons for his assertion. Let's look at them one by one. Firstly, he says, the living have a hope and can enjoy life. The living have a hope and they can enjoy life. Look at verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. Life is better than death because where there's life, there is hope as well. Where there's life, there is hope as well. In the ancient Near East, in Solomon's time, dogs were despised. Dogs were feared and they were loathed as well. But on the other hand, lions were honored. So here Solomon is saying that it is better that you have a live dog than the king of a jungle who's dead. Why? Because it's better to be alive and have no honor at all than to be dead and receive all the honor because the living one has hope. The living one has hope is what Solomon's point is. Also, Solomon is saying that the living know they will die. You and I know we're going to die. And knowledge of death will help us to embrace the joy of life and what life has to offer. But no such possibility exists for those who are dead. That their time has passed. There is no second chance for them. James Boswell, in his book, uh, Journal of a Tour of the Hebrides, he says this, and listen to this quotation very carefully. No wise man will be contented to die if he thinks he goes into a state of punishment. Nay, no wise man will be contented to die if he thinks he falls into annihilation. For however unhappy a man's existence may be, he would rather have it than not exist at all. Did you hear that? However unhappy a man's existence may be, he would rather have it than not exist at all. No, there is no rational principle by which a man can die contented, but by a trust in the mercy of God to the merits of Jesus Christ. So Solomon's point here is that the living have a hope and can enjoy life. Quite in contrast, the second point that Solomon says is that the dead have no capacity to enjoy life. Look at the second part of verse 5 and verse 6. But the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever. And they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Solomon here, in talking about the death and what all they cannot have, the disadvantages of it in being dead, is emphasizing the importance of seizing opportunities while we live rather than blindly hoping for something better to happen in the future, because death will end all opportunities, is what Solomon's point is. I think, in my estimate, this is one of the best passages to offer to somebody who is contemplating suicide. Life may be a terrible drudgery for you right now. Relationships may be sour. Finances may be at an all-time low. 
Spiritually, you may be feeling away from God, but if you're breathing, there is hope. Because life offers hope, is what Solomon's point is. Many people have built their successes out of the ashes of failure. Relationships can be healed. Sicknesses can be cured. Work can improve. It never makes sense to take your life because only life can offer hope. In 2005, uh, Steve Jobs, he was called to give the commencement address in Stanford University. Uh, you know what a commencement speech is. Speak, a speaker comes traditionally and he passes on some wisdom from life that people who are commencing a new phase of life can take on from there. And so Steve Jobs spoke about three things that were important in his life, and he says one of them was death. He said in 2004 he went to a doctor, and the doctor examined him, and he was diagnosed with (coughs) pancreatic cancer. And he went through a series of tests that evening, and uh, the doctor pulled out a couple of cells after endoscopy, and he said, this kind of a cancer can be cured by surgery. And so he went through surgery as well, And he ended up living for seven more years, but he ultimately died because the cancer came back and it claimed his life. But during the speech, commencement speech of 2005 at Stanford University, Steve Jobs made this statement. He said this, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, All fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important to me. Everything else just falls away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. That's exactly what Solomon is saying here. He has not pulled any punches in dealing about death. And the fact that our days are numbered ought to motivate us to live for God, to live for the glory of God. In light of the brevity of life, We must live with seriousness, recognizing the importance of a life well-invested. So two things we saw so far from Solomon about life and death. And that is, life has uncertainties, but death is certain for all, said Solomon. Secondly, life is more advantageous than death. So given that the future is uncertain, with the exception of death itself, and that life is better than death, we should continue to live, right? But then how then should we live? How should we go forward? Is a question that Solomon himself raises. And then he answers it in our third point, which is in verses 7 through 10. And they say that you should enjoy life and work with diligence. You should enjoy life and work with diligence. You see the progression that Solomon is giving here? First he said life has uncertainties. There's only one certainty, that is death. And then he went on to say, although death is certainty, we're all going to die. The fact of the matter is, life has more advantages. Life gives hope. And then he went on to say, yes, life gives hope, but how do we live? There's a way to live as well. And Solomon is saying that you must enjoy life and work hard. That is the way you and I ought to live. And in talking about it, he has four things to say about how to enjoy life and how to work hard as well. First thing he says, very simply, enjoy your meals. I didn't make that up. Read verse 7, please. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. That's brilliant. Look at the last part of it. God has already approved what you do. Throughout scriptures, listen here, please. Bread and wine are frequently representative of that which God gives to comfort us and cheer us. Bread and wine 
represent that which God gives to us to comfort us and cheer us. Even today, there are symbols of joy that the Lord gives us. The Lord gives of his goodness and his blessing. And what Solomon is saying here is that we ought to enjoy God's good gifts. There's nothing wrong in enjoying God's good gifts. Sometimes, enjoyment in the Christian circles is seen as something that is sinful. But Solomon's point here is that we must enjoy God's good gifts. And the fact of the matter is, it is God's will for us. God has already put his approval or stamp of approval upon his good gifts for us to enjoy in the right way. So celebrate life. Celebrate with your neighbor. Celebrate with others. Slow down and enjoy a meal this afternoon. Not just this afternoon, but for the rest of our lives as well. The reason that Solomon gives is this. God has already approved of your works, which means that this kind of an enjoyment is God's will for us. It is God's will for us that we enjoy. Now, this encouraging word, hear me please, this encouraging word does not contradict the fact that we are stewards and not to be good stewards of all that God gives to us. We ought to be, but this should help us realize it is not sinful to take pleasure in what God gives us. And also, we also need to strike a good balance between what God gives us in his grace and what is gratefulness and what is generosity. We ought to strike a good balance between what is gratefulness and what is generosity. We ought to know what to keep for ourselves under God's sovereignty and we also ought to know what to give away as well in our generosity. I'm not saying the balance is always easy. All I'm saying with Solomon is that it is important that there is a balance. So enjoy your meals is the first thing that Solomon is saying. Secondly, again, I didn't make it up. Dress well and use perfume. Verse 8. Let your garments be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. In the Old Testament, births, weddings, harvest festivals were special occasions and they're required for everyone to dress up well. And these were the occasions where everybody dressed up well in the Old Testament times. And especially in Solomon's day, black clothes and ashes on the head symbolize what? Mourning. But white clothes, sparkling clothes and oil on the head symbolize gladness and joy. And Solomon here is saying that we must wear good clothes and we must wear some perfume as well. Now, that's not a command that he's giving. It is just a suggestion. Because the phrase here, oil on the head, is the ancient equivalent of a deodorant or a perfume or a cologne that we apply after shave. And Solomon is saying that we must enjoy. And he's saying, do yourselves a favor and do others a favor by, <laughs> by dressing well and by applying some perfume. So Solomon is telling us this that you must dress every day in a way where people think you're on a way to celebration. Did you see Solomon's point here? And Solomon would say, and, and some people might ask the question, why would I have to rejoice so much? Why do I dress that way? You just told me from the word that I'm going to die anyway. But that's, that's exactly the point. The point is, we must enjoy every moment because we're going to die anyway. And so Solomon is saying, get dressed well. Apply some perfume. Eat out with family. Even in KFC, there's nothing wrong. Because you and I need to enjoy, and that is God's will for our lives. 
I know why Sibis is laughing so much, but <laughs> probably I'll know it soon. Thirdly, Solomon says, enjoy your spouse as a reward of life. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. You know, if you remember, Solomon had many wives and concubines, a thousand of them, 700 wives and 300 concubines. At the end of this life, when Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes, he wishes he had lavished all of that love on one woman alone. Isn't it interesting that although he had so many wives, he uses singular here and not plural. One partner, one heart, not many. You know, I just want to make a statement here. I did not have it in my manuscript, but I, as I was sitting here and thinking about my sermon, the Lord brought this to my mind. Uh, we'll see if it's really from the Lord after I see the reaction from you. Uh, but let me make this statement here. Uh, and uh, I think part of the enjoyment is taken away because of us men. The reason is, during our courtship especially, we try to impress the girl that we're pursuing. We want to dress well for her. We want to show our best for her. We want to have a perfume that smells good. But all of a sudden, when you get married, there is this kind of a feeling that comes that you've conquered what you wanted. And the pursual is gone. Am I right, men? Just say yes, please, because I don't want to get into trouble <laughs> going home. <laughs> if I do get into trouble going home, I can say all my brothers affirmed it. <laughs> Isn't it right? I think we ought to pursue our wives for the rest of our lives. Not just during courtship, but every single moment of our lives. Husbands, love your wife with every fiber of your being. For this may be your last day, like Solomon said. Listen to her. Talk with her. Spend time with her. Get flowers and chocolates. Appreciate her for who she is. And tell her she is beautiful. Praise her for her personal attributes and qualities. There is nothing wrong in saying... When your guests come home and she cooks something for the guests, there is nothing wrong in praising your wife and say, saying that she makes biryani very well. You're not boasting. And you don't have to be too humble and not say anything. It's perfectly all right to praise your wife in the presence of others. Praise her virtues as a wife, as a mother, as a homemaker. Openly commend her for who she is in the presence of others, as a marvelous friend, as a mate, as a friend, as a lover as well. In other words, what Solomon is saying is, the way you enjoy life is that you help her feel that she is the one who is the most important in life to you and nobody else. And you might say, as a man, this is hard because she needs to do that first. But the fact of the matter is, Solomon is saying, we're all going to die. And so why wait for anything and why wait for the other person to start off anything? Don't waste your time, says Solomon. Enjoy your life. Enjoy it now. Now, just to drive home this point, let me give you this illustration. There's a man by the name of Glenn Wolf. 
Glenn Wolf died alone in Los Angeles at the age of 88. No one claimed, uh, no one claimed his body, so the city had to dispose his body off uh, as, as they would do to any disenfranchised person. This is sad, but this is also not unusual in the U.S. is what I was told. But the fact of the matter is, Glenn's situation was very unique because he was no ordinary man. He was a Guinness Book Record holder. And what did he hold the record for? He held the record for the most number of marriages by a single man. 29. 29 marriages. He had so many children, so many grandchildren, so many in-laws who were alive, and yet he died alone. Which tells me that 29 times he was asked the question, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, forsaking all others? Do you pledge yourself only to her, so long as you both shall live? And all the 29 times he said, I do, but he never followed through. So he left behind several children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and he died alone. He spent his entire adult life looking for something he apparently never found, and he died alone. My question that I got as I read about this is this. How different would his death have been if he had invested all that love and energy, not on 29 people, but on the first woman that he married, and he took the vows so carefully? How different would it have been? I'm pretty sure he would never have died alone. There's an ancient quote from the Talmud. The Talmud is the oral law. It's a commentary on um, the Jewish uh, scriptures. So it is a Jewish law. It's a commentary on the Jewish law. And that says this. A man should eat and drink beneath his means, clothe himself within his means, and honor his wife above his means. Did you hear that? A man should eat and drink beneath his means, clothe himself within his means, and honor his wife above his means. So this summarizes well the last three verses that we read. Enjoy your spouse as a reward in life. Lastly, Solomon is saying that work with zeal. Work with zeal. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The word hand suggests ability, and the word find suggests opportunity. And the word might suggests intensity. So he's saying whatever your hand finds to do, whatever you have been given the ability for, do it well and do it with all intensity. Solomon wants us to know this, that there's only one life in which to make a difference. Don't waste that life. Because, he says, there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the abode of the dead, to which you're going. Solomon is saying this, that when death overtakes us, when it's time for us to leave, we cannot execute wisdom, we cannot have time to plan, and all our life comes to a screeching halt. Sheol kills earthly work is what Solomon's point is. And that's why we must work right now, we must work when we can. Work is a privilege that God has given us now, which we cannot enjoy in the afterlife. I know there's going to be some kind of work that the book of Revelation chapter 22 talks about, but that's going to be a completely different kind of a work, not the kind of work that we ought to do here to earn a bread. If you think that your work is not a blessing, go and talk to somebody who's been out of work for a long time. 
And he will tell you, or she will tell you, what a blessing work is. We need to do something worthwhile. We need to make a contribution. I've read this, that by the, from the time of college, and by the time a person is 50, if a person works about eight hours a day, he or she would have worked about 56,000 hours by the time he or she is 50. Imagine 56,000 hours of boredom if we didn't have work. I don't think anybody can come out on the other side with a sane mind with 56,000 hours of boredom. And therefore, you and I must have the right perspective about work. I think every day morning we must rise and thank the Lord for another day to use our gifts, our hands, our strength with the right perspective to work and serve in the capacity that the Lord has given us. And that kind of a mindset will add years to your life and life to your ears. Charles Spurgeon says this. He said, he's a prince of preachers. He often worked 18 hours a day. Once uh, he was asked by this famous missionary, David Livingston, he was asked the question, how do you do two people's work in one day? And Spurgeon replied, you have forgotten there are the two of us. You have forgotten there are the two of us. We are indwelt by the Spirit, and he enables us to do our work to the glory of God. So Solomon says, work with zeal. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The whole passage basically says, since you do not know the future, enjoy life and work hard. Since you do not know the future, enjoy life and work hard. It is vitally important for us to respond positively in light of our uncertain future. We should enjoy life as God enables and work hard as he gives strength. Let me just finish this with one illustration and then I'll be through and it sums it all up, I hope. In 2001, a man by the name of Bob Record. Bob Record was the president of North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So this man, during an address to uh, the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, he told of how his commitment to ministry almost cost him his marriage. He said when he was 29 years old, he was married to his wife Cheryl, and they had a four-year-old son and also a baby in arms, in their arms. So there was a newborn, there was a four-year-old, and Bob uh, was a pastor, he was a businessman, and he was also the national director of Evangelism Explosion, which meant that he had to be away for 33 weeks in a row in a year. And then, in one particular year, he was away for 33 weeks. He hadn't seen his children. He hadn't seen his wife. He was not involved with the family. And all of a sudden, he comes home, knocks on the door. His wife, Cheryl, opens the door. He puts his suitcase, and he asks this question. He says, do you want to know what God has done? She looks very seriously at him. She starts crying, and she says this, I thought you were an asset to the home, but now you are an intrusion to what's happening in the family. If this continues, I and children will have to leave. That episode shocked Bob record. And he started rethinking his life, and he made some changes. And that day, as he spoke to the students of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, he made a very important point. And he said this, that it is easy for those who have strong commitments to work and ministry. It is easy for those who have strong commitments to work and ministry to become distracted from what is actually important, marriage, children, and family. And, and then he went on to say, 
It is not just evil things that take away our commitment and our priorities, but even good things in life. So we must have the right priorities. Thank you for your patience. That's uh, what Solomon's message was this morning for us uh, as we listen to God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. We want to thank you for this ancient text from the pen of Solomon. As you spoke to us through your word, we understood about life and death and how to live in light of an uncertain future. We understand that the future is uncertain in this world. And even though we are under the divine sovereign care, we often go through tough times. And there's only one certainty that we're all going to die. But Lord, you said there is advantageous, it is advantageous to live than to die because life gives hope. But we also can enjoy life and work hard. Help each one of us to have the right perspective about life, although we know it's uncertain. But you're sovereign over everything. And help us to enjoy life in the way that you enable us to enjoy and work hard to your glory. We also want to thank you for the rest of the meetings this morning. We pray that you would bless them and uh, help us also have, uh, to have a good fellowship to the glory and the honor of your name. In Jesus' name.